Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Oh, God. Oh, my ears are blushing. Um, welcome to the show. Um, my name's Nick. And my this name is... Nick and... I mean, how have you fucked this up? How have you fucked this? You were were there going three minutes to go, two minutes to go, one minute to go, and then we're off, and I say, my name's Nick, and this is... And you go, and now it's Nick? Come on. Uh, You're Nick. All right, we'll do a do-over. We'll do a do-over. We'll do a do-over. Right, for me and you, for a peace of mind, we'll start the show... Um, okay, right. So, uh, w- hey, my name, w- w- welcome to Camp Covid. We are broadcasting live from our living rooms. We're not live, we're pre-recording on Wednesday in our living room. We're recording as live. We are alive. It's as live. It's, uh, a lot of people ask, and by a lot of people I mean not one, um, how'd you do the show? And we, we, we talked for two hours and then, and then, that's, then we leave the meeting. That's how we do it. Um, but uh, my name is Nick, and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf's... Fan Club. <laughs> um, uh, and first rule of fan club is uh, tell your friends about fan club. And the second rule of fan club is... Nah. Please, for the love of God, tell your friends. <laughs> tell your friends. <laughs> um, although... Uh, we've just had some absolutely heady news. I don't, oh, yeah. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if I'm using the word. I'm not sure if I'm using the word heady in the right context. Um, yeah, like Glenn Heady. Headley. We've had some. That's Glenn Headley, Headley. Uh, famously the star of Dick Tracy and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, she's no longer with us, is she? No. R.I.P. Um, it's sort of taking the shine off of the news I was going to do now. We had some good news. I've sort of blown it by making, talking about people who have died, sadly. We've just found out uh, in, in, in brighter news in... Oh, God, it's just awful to... It's, I, can't, I can't segue, mate. Did you see how... Did you see how upbeat I was? Did you did you hear and Uh, see how upbeat I was at the beginning of the show? And did you see what you've done through a series of interjections? (laughs) You've beaten me into absolute. Richard Madeley would do it on this morning. They've got to go from tragic to sort of like a a, a cookery item, you know, death, disease, cookery. Yeah, but but what? What? what, my aspirations aren't to be Richard Maidley, right? I just want to be me. I just want to be, you know, uh, uh, broadcasting the same genuine um, train of thought. Well, I don't, oh, you've just bashed it out of me. <laughs> oh, God. Well, with number 30, what we have, we've just found out that we, in the charts... We are number 31 in the iTunes charts of Malta. Malta. So we're in the top 31 podcasts on iTunes in Malta. So this is a day to celebrate. And that might not sound much to you, but we are beating some pretty huge names uh, in uh, the realm of uh, the entertainment industry. You bet. 
Yeah, they're way down the list. Who was it? Frank Skinner, he's 65. John Robbins, who is a fan club, uh, he's a member of the fan club clubhouse. I think he came in to try and up his stats in Malta. (laughs) He probably gave him a bit of a hand. Probably gave him a bit of a hand, but he's only managed 61. Well, can't he? And and, and we're thrashing the likes of uh, Ed Gamble and uh, James Acaster. So we are absolutely nailing Malta. So just as a shout out from myself and Nathaniel, Nathaniel Metcalf. Metcalf, we'd like to very much say a big fan club hello and thank you to all of our Maltese fans. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, if only if only um, we were as beloved in our in our own nation. Uh, but that's not on you, Malta. We're not no. angry with you. We're right. angry with the people of Britain that have let us down consistently. I wonder if it's cost-effective for us to tour Malta, because the cost would take a lot to get us out there. No. No. Easy, chat. They're Easy. starting booking again. What's that, 26 quid each? We'll go to Malta. We'll do a live broadcast of this. Uh, Natalie can come as well. What's that? That'd be uh, £78. £78, perfect. Can we raise £78? We don't know what this chart is based on or the the listener figures for Malta. It's based on how many people listen listen to us. It's percentage, Um, though, so we don't have numbers, so it's hard to scale it in terms of how many people would come to a live live edition of it. This is my lockdown moment, I think. Yeah. (laughs) This is the greatest moment in fan club history, I think. I'm so... Overwhelmed, and uh, I've, I can—I just feel like I've been entered by an energy today. Uh, uh, this is going to keep this is going to keep me going for the rest of the week. <laughs> I'm really pleased. I'm delighted. Someone needs to call me an exorcist because there's something in me today that uh, is uh, just, I feel absolutely fantastic. I feel like going up and licking a banister, uh, a public banister, not even just one of the ones in my own house. And I do have many banisters. Um, uh, I've only got one floor in my house. I just sort of, uh, I just started collecting banisters and put them on my walls. Uh, and I've just got a collection of uh, banisters on my walls. Um, I use them to hang up laundry. Um, but uh, but I, I might leave the flat today and uh, lick some public ones because I feel like nothing can get me anymore. Anymore. All of the demons have been exercised. No need for an exorcist because all of the demons of the past have been exercised. We're number 31 in the Maltese iTunes charts. Thanks, Malta. Uh, Justin, Nick. Heady means having a strong or exhilarating effect. So I'd say you used it perfectly. Oh, it's a heady, there's a heady mix of emotions going on <laughs> at the moment. And, uh, and that's saying something because I haven't seen. A single human being for an entire week, <laughs> and I am feeling good. I've done I've done some podcasts. I've done some other podcasts now. Oh yeah, uh, done some good ones, and I've done some ones that I felt less comfortable doing. Mm. But uh, I, I gave it my all, yeah. and um, 
all I can say is, Nat, I have seen other people on screen, but no one compares to you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. We were, meant to, we were meant to meet up at the weekend and do uh, 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 Marshall Julius's uh, quiz did. book. And I completely forgot. I did. I don't think I was well, doing anything either. I think I was probably just sitting about. <laughs> well, you know what? You don't, you don't live too far away from me and I don't live too far away from you. I think we should go for a... So, I mean, are we, is everyone still doing socially distancing now? Because we could go for a socially distanced drink in the park and then play some quiz games. Yeah, we can do that. We'll absolutely that. I could put a bike somewhere. I'm getting a bike. Get a little Morris um, yeah. bike. Yeah, let's do halfway. There's a park over the road from my flat, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes sometimes I walk there. So we'll meet right bang in the middle. Um, it's about ten feet away from my front door. Uh, and uh, you're just over the road, um, but uh, but I've got to go down the road a little bit to get in through the gate. So I think that that's fair enough. There is a bit of walking. Plus it's the complex, enough. the complex I live in is huge, and I have to just. It takes a good like three or four minutes to actually get out of the building. So <laughs> I think it's I think it's fair. <laughs> anyway, um, let's make sure. You know let's make sure. The thing about this arranging this is that. This radio show is so lo-fi in a way that I was just going to start having a normal chat about logistics. Because <laughs> but this is, this is actually broadcast. And I was just going to go, oh, and I was just going to go off on a tangent about some, some people we know that is pointless to talk about on the radio. Sure, but this might seem pedestrian to you now, but to the people of Malta who may not have even stepped on the streets of England, uh, yeah. of London town. Uh, it's actually painting quite a vivid picture of the way that some of their favourite celebs may be living. Yeah. And by that, I mean me and you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, what have you been up to this week, Nat? God, people, I, I just want to say that people say that it's not much of a format to your show. And by people, I mean not one person. But I'm t it's, a, it's, it's a chip. I've got a chip on my shoulder. Because I feel like we do have a format, but we are masters at blurring the edges between reality and construct. You know? Yeah. yeah. But I, 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 I am genuine. This is the first time that we've actually done Fan Club where I haven't asked you how you are before the show started. No, no. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm, uh... Um, I seem to be like again. Time seems to slip away from me. I can't really explain. I've got time flies by. I'm not watching a lot, or, or, or I'm seemingly doing doing things and keeping myself busy and tidying up. But I'm uh, I haven't I haven't watched a lot. I've been watching uh, watched a few episodes of the '60s TV show Callan with Edward Woodward as uh, a sort of British assassin working for the government. Very good. All right. Very All good. Why is it so good? I got them a couple of years ago. They're like, um, they're really sort of, it, they feel very modern and they've got a thing where each series sort of changes what the show's about. So like an event will happen <laughs> and it's almost like to stop the writers getting bored, it sort of becomes a different type of series, every series, if you know what I mean. Like little things will change within the, 
the status quo of all the characters, and it means the next series is completely different because everyone's got different relationships and power power struggles between all the main characters kind of change and things. All right, so a bit like Grange Hill. Very much like Grange Hill in that way, yeah. Very much like Grange yeah. Hill. Sure. All right. Okay. Now, so, now I'm now now you've hooked me. <laughs> so uh, the, the, you have the forum. The ground, the floor is yours. <laughs> Sell it. Well, I was watching. I watched a film of Callum, which I'd not seen before, and um, I was um, and I really liked it. And it sort of adapts the first episode again, but in a sort of movie. Well, sort of like a British movie budget, so it's still quite small budget, but it's got the action stuff in it, and it really. What is this? this? Callum the movie. What's Callum the movie? The thing I was just talking about with Edward Woodward. Callum. And they made it into a series. It was a series, and it was really popular in the sixties, and in the early seventies, they do a movie version of it. Right, right, like on the buses. Like on the buses, yeah, very much like on the buses. But actually like that, like that, same principle, same principle. And so they do the movie version of Callan with Edward Woodward, and I've not seen that before, and it's a bit more action-y. They put a lot more kind of action scenes and car chases in it, which you don't really get in the series. The series is much more kind of um, talky, and um, he's like a sort of very working-class uh, guy. He's been thrown out of the army. He's been uh, sort of picked up by the government, He's done some jobs for the government and he's killed people in the past and it's, it's sort of messed with his brain. He doesn't want to do it. it um, he's constantly trying to leave, but he's unable to leave this service. So he's basically like an assassin for the government that if he gets caught, they kind of disavow any knowledge of him. And he doesn't want to do it. He's completely haunted by all the people he's killed in the past. He's very moral, but has this sort of uh, obligation that, to the government that he has to do it, otherwise he'll be killed himself. And it's sort of very, it's very nice, very kind of uh, sort of psychological thing with him as well, having to do this job. Good shot. Which one's, which one's Edward Woodward? He is the equaliser in... Uh, is, he, is he in The Wicker Man? The Wicker Man, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Edward Woodward. I'd recommend it. What would Edward Woodward do <coughs> in the woods? What would Woodward do in the wood? Yeah, I like Edward Woodward. <laughs> yeah. I just like saying it. <laughs> it's, a pleasing, uh, it's a pleasing thing to say, Edward Woodward. Uh, who are the other Woodwards? Uh, who's Joanne Woodward? There's a Joanne Woodward, right? Why waste your first name? Hmm? Why waste the first? Why waste the first name? On um, imagine Edward Woodward's middle middle name. It's more of a nickname. Is Woody, <laughs> and then he married a woman called uh, uh, Jessica Wood, and then they had a double-barreled sort of hyphenated name. Yeah. So his name was Edward Woody Woodward Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, my name's Edward Woody Woodward Wood. Eddie Woody Woodward Wood. Uh, and they call me Callum. Uh, I can just picture the series. Yeah, that's what it's like. Yeah, it's very, very similar to uh, the way you're imagining it. 
Yeah, it's good. I like it. I'm, I like it already. And when did you say it was made? 1971? The film, I think, is 72, I think. Nothing the film, was it later? 73? And the series... Edward Wood, Edward Wood, Wood. Hey, hey, guys. I'm looking for a new TV series and later on a movie. It's Edward Wood, 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 Wood. service. Hey, God. Hey. Hey. This is... I'm talking to my agents. Get me, get me a job. Who am I talking to? Come on, it's the woodster. It's the woodman. It's wood chipper. It's any wood, 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 wood. Any wood, 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 wood. Any wood, wood, Oh, God. Any wood, 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 wood. Any wood, wood. Hey, my name is Any wood, wood. Any wood, 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 wood. You say you haven't seen anyone for a week. I haven't seen anyone for a week. Right. It's one of the rare... Also, you know, I... I know nothing of that thing that you were talking about, and so I really didn't have anything to contribute to that conversation. <laughs> I don't know, you've done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Number 31 in Malta. Uh, <sighs> Number 31, I'm so fucking pumped, Nats. Joanne Woodward was Paul Newman's wife. Um, Tom Jones' real name is Thomas John Woodward. No. Tom Jones was um, 80, wasn't he? He was 80. And they uh, got to do... They'd obviously planned, like, to do a tribute show for him, but they'd sort of planned it. They're obviously going to film bits for it before lockdown. So instead... They, they didn't manage to get it done, though. So instead, you just had a, a woman from the one show introducing clips of Tom Jones from the set of The One Show as a special tribute to Tom Jones' 80th birthday. And it felt like, God, this is cheap, isn't it? It's what he, it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> Wait, he's, still, he's still with us. He's 80. He is. Um, yeah. I, I told you, didn't I? I saw him once uh, at the V Festival. Oh, yeah. How was he? He was, he was, he was really good. You know, he's good. He's Tom Jones. He's a legend. But um, he was on, because it was V Festival. So uh, the whole floor was covered, absolutely littered with oh. uh, ni- nitrous oxide gas canisters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen them. So, you know, so you, but it was like Wade, you know, like that scene in Hot Shots too, when he's uh, on the boat and he's shooting his machine gun. Yeah. And the whole boat gets filled with. Uh, uh, bullet shells. It was like it was like that. Like it goes up to his waist. You, it was like ankle deep, wading through nitrous oxide canisters. Um, and uh, Tom Jones was at that festival, and you just think, oh god, yeah, there's, there's a life. He opened for Ollie Murs, <laughs> and it was like this is the closest we've got to Elvis, and he's opening for Ollie Murs. But like Ollie Murs, it was like this is this is the closest we've got to Elvis, and Tom Jones is opening for him. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, it was... Ollie Murs, because I always think Ollie Murs must be like more popular than I think he is. There's like a video. Well, he's he's had an 80th birthday in lockdown, hasn't he? Ollie Murs. Show... Yeah, I think the one show did a special on him as well, showing just clips of his career. He's got a video, and in the video is Rowan Atkinson. And uh, Snoop Dogg. And you go, what, oh, an Ollie Murs video? How big is Ollie Murs? Is Ollie Murs much bigger than I think he is? 
To me, he's like, he did, wasn't he like a runner up on the X Factor or something? No, I th yeah, I think he's probably like, like what, 5'9? <laughs> or he might, might be taller. We had, a, um, we had a cardboard cutout of Ollie Murs on the set of Uncle. Oh, yeah. And I think Dylan, Dylan Moran was throwing uh, shuriken spikes at him. Uh, but that's part of the. That was part of the. That's part of the joke. I mean, I I didn't write it, um, so I don't really uncle. know much about that. No, I don't write, Uncle. No, we should have been saying it every week, really. Um, yeah, fucking, it was good. But what Tom Jones does is he's adapted his. He's adapted his uh, songs now. So when he sang Kiss, he's quite religious, I think, in his old, older age. And so when he sings Kiss, instead of saying, I think I better dance now, he goes, I think I better pray now. We've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten now. It is weird. Definitely. We've definitely, oh, I think I better pray now. Oh, I just want your extra time and your kiss. Um, he's, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was really weird, but I think it's because he's he can't really dance now, but he can pray that it's all over. Please don't don't make me come to this festival. You can get on his knees to pray, just can't stand up again. Yeah, yeah he's a funny one sometimes. What's the um, what's the song? The one you introduced me to. The word the young new Mexican puppeteer. Yeah, the, the young Mexican. The young New Mexican puppeteer. He saw the people all lived in fear. He thought maybe they'd listen to a puppet telling them what to do. Well, he got some string and he got some wood. He did some carving and he was good. And people came running so they could hear the young New Mexican puppeteer. It's, uh, it's the most, if you have never, if, if you're listening back at home or in Malta, and you've never heard that song. The, the, I think the Young New Mexican Puppeteer is one of the most satisfying songs to <laughs> sing while you're just doing the washing up or just pootling around your house, you know. When he sings, um, well, then he got some string and he got some wood. He's like, he's talking about um, a, young New a, new, a young New Mexican puppeteer. He's a puppeteer from New Mexico, a young guy. And... Uh, He's building a puppet, and Tom Jones has written a, a, a rock and roll song about this guy. And he's building a puppet, and he just gets the tools that he needs to get a puppet. And he gets he, needs, he gets the supplies that he needs. And he got some string, and he got some wood, and then the way Tom Jones just throws him into singing it. Well, I got some string, and I got some wood. Like, it, like it's the sexiest thing you've ever heard anyone do. It's, it's I think it's such an incredible song. Talk about fan club. I am such a massive fan of that song. It's just one of the most entertaining. It teaches people. It's like, it feels like it's set in like a, a sort of dystopian future, doesn't it? So he's sort of teaching people with, with people of the day. So he's done, so one of the puppets he builds, I think, is Martin well, Luther first King. he carved out old Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln, yeah, Abe Lincoln. And then uh, then a king called Martin Luther. Yeah. Martin Luther King. Oh. And then, then the Peaceful Prince, which I think uh, is uh, <laughs> our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the young New Mexican puppeteer, 
he saw the people who lived in fear. Uh, <laughs> he thought that maybe they'd listen to a puppet telling them what to do. So he got some... <laughs> that's the story. He, see, he, sees that little, he sees that all the people in New Mexico, they are having a hard old time. So he goes away, he carves three puppets, right? And, uh, and then he, he goes up on the Royal Mile uh, for uh, 17 hours a day. Um, and he just, he rakes it in. So many people just throw money in his bucket and he's just like, I haven't even got a venue. I haven't even got a venue. I'm just on the Royal Mile every day. Oh, hey, clear off. This is my patch. Um, that's, that's how he did it. And he just goes around from town to town with his little puppet show. And, you know, uh, people, people won't listen to a person, he found. Right? They, wouldn't listen to, they wouldn't listen to actual Abe Lincoln or actual Martin Luther King or actual Jesus Christ. But what they will listen to is uh, his puppets. And it's like, it's a, a, such an insane song, but um, it's also kind of like a hopeful song. It's about kind of like, um, maybe, maybe we won't listen to each other, but maybe if there's a brave enough puppeteer out there, maybe we'll, maybe we'll listen to him. Or her. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what we need right now. Uh... Well, then he got some string and he got some wood. He did some carving and he was good. <laughs> it's not. It was good. It, it was good. It's yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. You've got his beard, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Maybe if you had it's meant to be. I can see it's meant to be. If you added the top hat, then we'll definitely know who it is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, put the top hat on. Jesus, yeah, <laughs> Jesus, uh, doing a show, doing doing a Broadway. Have music. his arms out. Have his arms out. Because if you're not sure, that'll that'll make you go. Oh, he's got his arm like as Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. No, but he wouldn't have to carve his arms out, would he? Because he'd just do that with his fingers. He'd do that with his middle finger and thumb, with his head operating, with his with his forefinger operating the head. You know, you know, I can't tell who that is. And he would just extend his thumb and forefinger and he'd reach his arms out and go, oh, it's Jesus, obviously, on the, on the cross. Anyway. What you, Nick? You were What's spot that? on. Ollie Murs is five foot nine. That's what I said. Yeah, exactly. Well, he is. I'm and trying to style that out like I knew. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a guess. But just look at him. He looks like the sort of cunt that's five foot nine. Do you know what I mean? Fuck he's, in, he's got one of those haircuts, I think, that looks like it's been done at like one of those six pound hairdressers. Yeah, to add on three inches to your head so that you can go, oh, no, I'm, I'm almost six foot. You know, but fucking hell, he just looks like one of them fucking five foot nine pricks. And if you're five foot nine and you're listening to this and you're getting offended and you're right in, yeah, don't don't be offended. All this goes to prove is that you are a cunt, all right? How tall are you, Nat? About five nine. Yikes. So, so we uh, so what? They cut a clip out. That'd be a good clip, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. If the rest of the show 
uh, crashes into the side of the mountain, then at least we'll have that. Um, so, so, what else have you been a fan of this week? Um, Bearing in mind, you've got two minutes. <laughs> I've been going out, been going out my Boris bike. Been going out on Boris bike. David Trent, David Trent is gonna, um, he's gonna drive me a, a little bike. He's got a spare bike that's taking up room in his house and he says he's going to get me a bike which I can ride so I don't have to keep getting Boris bikes. That's nice. That's nice. It's nice. Lovely of him. Yeah. Hmm. And why, do you talk to him quite a lot then about Boris bikes, do you? Yeah, well, I think as soon as I said I was on a bike, I think he, because he loves bikes, he's got, he's then like on it. Tell me about bikes. But he doesn't listen to the show, does he? He, um, you've, you've actually had a real conversation with him. I've had a text converse, conversation with him about... Um, did he text you or did you text him? I think I texted him to say I'd been on a bike because I thought he'd be proud of me. Just want to get, just want to get some... To be proud of me for riding a bike. He loves bikes. He's going to love that I've been on a bike. So if I want him to text me, I've got to start cycling? Yeah, talk about bikes. I mean, I tried to get into computers, you know, but that didn't impress him. Bikes is your, is the key to David Trent's heart, I think. But he does love it. does love it. You get a lot of texts about certain types of bikes, bike shops, spokes, wheel arches, Allen keys, etc. That's the, that's the key to his heart, Nick. Just got to chat bikes. Yeah. I suppose. He'll accept you. <sighs> You've got to, you've got to do it on his terms. <laughs> Just felt like there's so many barriers at the moment, aren't there? And oh uh, well. What, what, what if? Well, what, you treat you treat him well, that. <laughs> you love every hair on his head. I'm never getting on a bike, never again. No. At most. A penny farthing, but that's only if it's sort of like for a historical epic. <laughs> Is that why I've got to come to the bar cops at your house? Yeah, I'm not cycling. <laughs> oh, don't mind walking. Don't, don't get me wrong, I don't mind walking. But I ain't cycling. We covered this. I've told, I told you my sad story about cycling last week, so I'm not going to do it. Or was it last week or was it the week before? I don't know. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember anything. So you've been cycling, you've watched Callum starring Eddie Woody Woodward Woodford. Yeah. Uh, and I've not seen a lot else in that thing. I watched The Social Network again over the weekend. Yeah, the Facebook movie. Do you remember Facebook. when they said they were going to make a Facebook movie? And everyone yeah. just assumed it would be about people at home doing status updates. And just was just like, <laughs> what's that going to be? What's that going to be? What, like photos of your nan? <laughs> What, like, befriending people from school? What? What do you mean you're doing a Facebook movie? And then they made it about, like, you know, the psychopaths behind the making of uh, the website Facebook. And then you go, oh, yeah, it does make sense, actually, that they got David Fincher to do that. Oh, no, no, all right, yeah, fine. Yeah. Good movie. Good movie. It is a good movie. Have, have no special effects stage up, because uh, uh, I always forget his name. What's, what's he called? Army um, Hammer. 
Army Hammer. Because I just, oh, because uh, when it came out, I was not aware of Army Hammer. I didn't know who Army Hammer was. Although that must have been, it must have been a long time after he was going to be Batman on... Um, yeah, he must have been bubbling under. He must have been on people's radar. They must um, have been, this guy's, this guy's a good, a good prospect. He was going to be... He was going to be Batman to Joss Hartnett's uh, Superman in the Justice League movie, right? Mm. But I don't think Josh Hartnett wanted to do it, so it probably, he wasn't probably going to... If they had made that film, he probably wasn't going to make... He probably wasn't going to be him. But, so when they made the social... What year was that, 2008? 2010. Wow, right. Okay. To me, I was surprised it was that long ago. In my mind, it just... If I had to guess what year it came out, I would have said 2014, 2015. It's nothing like it. Actually, if I'd have taken a moment to think about that, I know who I went to the cinema to see that with. So uh, I could have worked that out. It was it was winter. I think it came out December 2010. Um, so, um, right. So at the time when I watched it, I was not aware that Army Hammer wasn't a set of identical twins. Neither. But I was aware that that shot when he's rowing was a very weird sort of like almost too perfect um, shot of because uh, Army Hammer basically is one man who plays twins in the social network mm -hmm. and um, there's a shot where he's rowing him him and his brother his twin brother are rowing down whatever river it is and uh, there's sort of like this really sort of like it's not like it's not so weird that you go wow that's weird but it's almost like too slick. And it's because it's like a programmed shot. It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's digital manipulation where they've obviously filmed it once and filmed it twice. And they probably even filmed it on green screen. He was just sat in a boat and then they added it all together. It's a really good shot, but it was just like this little thing where in the back of my mind, I thought, there's something not right with that shot. And then at the end, when you find out that he's an actor who's playing twins, then you go, oh my God, that makes sense. But that was like one of the only... Because they filmed it once and they filmed it twice. They looked at the film and it was nice. Oh my god, that was really good, Nat. Thank you, thank you. That was that was a callback, and it was you, you dipped your toe into a genre that you're not famous for. No, I'm very versatile. Musical comedy. <laughs> That's uh, where well, you take a song and you change the words and you make it funny. Uh, and people have a laugh at it. <laughs> it's great. That's fan club. Um, speaking of songs, uh, <laughs> if you were going to, uh, if you were going to give the social, that was almost a really slick segue. If you were going to give the social network a rating out of seventeen pounds fifty, how much would you pay for it? Ooh, I reckon I'd pay a good fourteen pounds for it. Maybe yeah. thirteen. Thirteen pounds. Oh, that's about three stars to you at home. Should have just done the star rating, actually. Um, so, um, uh, as, uh, but do you know what I mean about the special effects? When you find out at the end that he's twins, you go, of course, of course, of course. But when I watched it for the first time, I just assumed that they'd got two twins that could really act. Yeah, I have. I've never, and even watching it this time, being aware of it, I was that kind of... There wasn't really any bits that I... I got kind of sucked into it, and I almost made a mental note to have a proper look to try and see if I could see the joins. But then I guess it's actually... 
it is that it's a good movie that it just got sucked in again. And by the end of it, you go, I didn't really, I wasn't really paying attention. I just, you know, I accepted it as two characters again. I wasn't yeah. looking for the join. So that's good. That's a very good that's in its favour. That's good acting. I think he's a good actor. I think he's really good. Um, just uh, News just in. The common animals in Malta include weasels, hedgehogs, bats, white rabbits and mice. So Nathaniel and myself, we salute the animals of Malta. <laughs> play that play that funky music, white boy. <laughs> play a song. Play a song. Yeah, play the song. <laughs> and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We are. We are. We're back. We're back like crack. So, here we are. Um, what, what have I been? What have I been up to this week, you say? What have I been a fan of? That's nice of you to ask me. Um, right. I watched Crocodile Dundee this week. Oh, yeah? When was the last time you saw that? Probably... Hmm... 1988? Wow. Yeah, I reckon I'm about that, the same. A long, long time ago. I, I saw that. I saw Crocodile Dundee 2 at the cinema, and I didn't watch Crocodile Dundee 3. But I did see Lightning Jack, which was Paul Hogan and Linda Wachowski. No, I don't think Linda Wachowski was in uh, Lightning Jack. I think it was Beverly... Hmm, was it Beverly Dango? There is one film, isn't there? I think. Almost an Angel. Oh, right, yeah, that's probably what I think. Mm. That's Paul Hogan and Linda Wachowski. Anyway, ah. Crocodile Dundee 2... Uh, Crocodile Dundee has not aged well. No. Doesn't tell. At all. There are many moments in it that... I think, not just because of today and the, the world that we're living in, I don't think that they, I don't think that there's been stuff in that film that's been acceptable for at least 20 years. I just think that it's a, it's a trouble. Mm. Don't, yeah, I just, mm. I felt uncomfortable throughout the majority of Crocodile Dundee. So less about that. I saw the Nicolas Cage film Colour Out of Space. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, but one thing before that, one thing I, I, um, uh, we've got like on our, uh, apartment, uh, building, our, our flats, um, we've got like an internal, uh, messaging system and someone put up, um, a, uh, TV cabinet for sale. Uh, and it was like, it was like half as much as it would have been if I'd have bought it from a shop. And I bought it, and it was flat pack. And um, I built some flat pack furniture this week. And um, I don't know. I don't really talk about it, but I got um, an A plus for my uh, woodwork uh, GCSE. Yeah, Edward Woodwork. Uh, from my Edward Woodward Woodwork uh, GCSE, and um, I made a tie rack for my dad. And it's beautiful. He still uses it. Not that he wears ties, but, you know, they're hanging up in his uh, wardrobe. Um, I love building things. And um, 
and I, and I know that it's flat pack furniture, but I don't think flat pack furniture is really idiot proof. I think you can still fuck it up. I did put one of the shelves in upside down, so that you so that the screws are facing up rather than down. Uh, but I'd built so much of the other stuff around it by that point that I've just left it and I've gone, I know about that, but it actually doesn't change the aesthetics of it. And there's going to be, like, DVDs stacked on top of it anyway, so you'll never know. But, uh, yeah, I spent a couple of nights doing that and I really, really, really enjoyed it just to sort of focus on building something in my flat. But the other thing about my flat is it's um, quite... Um, it's quite small in terms of floor space and um, I don't really have the room for it. So basically I built this furniture and now I'm basically living in an internal fort. It's like I built a labyrinth in my um, own flat where... But the idea is that I'm going to get rid of some furniture, I'm going to get rid of, I've got these, I've got these sort of like wooden sort of like apple crates that I use to sort of like store like records and CDs and uh, DVDs and Blu-rays in. And so the idea is that I'm going to transfer some of them into there and get rid of some of the crates. So I will be able to sort of like um, uh, decant some of that stuff into the other thing. But at the moment it is fucking crowded in here. But, um, yeah, as I, as, it was get, as I was putting it together and the actual unit was getting bigger and bigger, I was just like, I've made a terrible mistake here. But I think in the long run, it will pay off. But yeah, I am very happy with it. Also, the unit is slightly taller than this wagon wheel. Um, I've got a wagon wheel coffee table, like the one out of When Harry Met Sally, which is kind of like a... a it's, um, it's a wink to my love of the movie when Harry met Sally, but it is also, you know, uh, ties into my love of cowboys and um, and, and westerns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does like two. It does two things, or three things. It's a coffee table. It's uh, a wagon wheel coffee table, so it fits in with all my cowboy stuff, and also it's a reference to when Harry met Sally. So you know, it's like a piece of art. You know, uh, and then I also own a. Uh, a, a sort of like a, I think it's like a garden table, but it's like another coffee table, which also has wagon wheels. But instead of the wagon wheel building up the surface of the table, the wagon wheels are at the side. Uh, there's two wagon wheels at either side that make up the legs of the coffee table, and um, uh, and that is slightly shorter than the unit that I've just built which is perfect because my TV is against the wall. It's got these plugs on the wall that you can just see over the top of the TV. And because of the different height, it will hide them. And that's one of the things that I've been wanting to do for the entire time I've lived here. It's always been annoying that you can just see these plugs poking out the top of the TV. So I've absolutely nailed that, or should I say screwed that together yes. uh, using, the, using the instructions that were handily included with the set um i love flat pack furniture and i love building stuff and my only regret about my love of it is that it meant it's meant that i've got increasingly less room to build more flat pack furniture so i'm going to put this out there when lockdown is over if anyone hates building flat pack furniture and uh, wants to hire me to come around your house and build it 
uh, I'd quite happily do it for a nominal fee. Uh, I'll just sit in your living room and build you like a like a, a, a bookshelf or a chest of drawers or whatever you want. I'll just come over. You know, I don't drink tea, uh, but if you've got Pepsi Max cherry and some ice, uh, I'll have like a pint of that and I'll just get get to work on it. Take me a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> But I'm fairly, I'm fairly, you know, uh, easy to look after. So uh, that's 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 my big point. I love flat pack furniture. Got really no more room in my flat for it. But if you'd like to hire me, I will do that after lockdown, and I'll come over. So, um, uh, um, and I'm happy to travel to Malta to do that as well. So, uh, <laughs> please come in. Oh, here's Natalie. You you've not been muted. Um, so here we go. So I saw Colour Out of Space, which is a um, which is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptation by um, Richard Stanley. Yes. So Richard Stanley, uh, he directed a film called Hardware in the early 90s. Um, and then he directed, which I've never seen, but I have seen a film called Dust Devil, which I saw like a long, I saw that a long time ago. I think it was on Channel 4 at like one o'clock in the morning once. And that stars, I think his name is John Robert Burke. And he was the guy that played Robocop in Robocop 3. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've got vague memories of that. I just remember it being really disturbing. And then he went on to do uh, uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, but then he got fired and replaced by John Frankenheimer. And there's a documentary that I watched last night about that called Lost Souls. Right, which I would say that is one of the best movies. It, it, you, you want to quantify it by saying it's a great documentary, but I think it's a great movie. It's got everything that you want out of a out of a movie. It's got thrills, suspense, twists, stars, good guys, bad guys, a hero. It's got everything that you want out of a out of a, out of a fictional movie, but it's uh, this documentary about this guy's. Um, uh, uh, lifelong um, passion project and sort of his life all falling apart at the same time and, it, and it's this great documentary that I watched last night so it's called Lost Souls uh, no, Lost Soul and it is um, you can get it on Amazon Prime and um, it's free um, but I but the reason I watched that was because I watched Colour Out of Space the other day. I did a Nicolas Cage podcast um, where basically uh, the guy interviews uh, people about a Nicolas Cage film. So I watched it for that, but I knew I wanted to watch it. But it just kicked me in the ass to see it. Um, have you seen it, Matt? I've not seen the movie, no. I was sort of... I did kind of... I was, I was certainly interested to see it. <laughs> and then he did it on a couple of times at, like, the Prince Charles and things, and I was sort of waiting to see it, but... I never got around to it. It had a very limited theatrical release, I think, in February, just before lockdown. Um, and it didn't really do that well theatrically, but I think it was always intended to be like a streaming um, uh, film. Uh, and if you, did you see Mandy? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a spiritual sequel to Mandy, um, in, in, including the colour palette. It's like a psychedelic. The story is like it's a short. It's a short story about a family that live in the woods, um, and uh, and it was H.P. Lovecraft, so it was set like in the late eighteen hundreds, I think. Um, uh, and a meteor hits, and then it's kind of like this fairly distanced um, explanation 
of what happened to the environment and the family as this meteor spreads. That's the short story, because um, uh, I listened to it afterwards, uh, which is available on YouTube, and it's about an hour and 10, an hour and 20 minutes, so it's sort of like perfect for like listening to uh, just as you're going to sleep. Um, and um, yeah, it's 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 a it's an all, it's a, it's a good it's a good story, but it's kind of like go how are you going to make a film out of that? And I think the film was uh, really impressive. It had like a ten million budget. Basically, I can't remember the production company, but basically, it's Elijah Woods production company who yeah, made that. what are they called. I can't remember. It's it's him and someone else, isn't it? And it's their, it's their kind of joint. Yeah, they made a film together called The Trust, and then I think. Um, uh, they produced Mandy and then Richard Stanley, they were like, Richard Stanley's a great director, we should get Richard Stanley to make a film. They, he pitched them Colour Out of Space, which is his first film since Island of Dr Moreau. He hasn't done anything in like 25 years because uh, it ended his career and also it made him disgusted with the whole filmmaking process. So they gave him this 10 million budget and then Nicolas Cage had just done Mandy and they said, do you want to do it? And so he, he was like, yeah. Um, I'd love to work with that production company again. Love HP Lovecraft, and obviously the director was really passionate about it. And um, yeah, it's, it's 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 a very slow film. I think um, what I was saying on that podcast was that I think the pacing is sort of a bit slow. It's a slight story, so and it's a two-hour, ten-minute film. So it's kind of or maybe it's slightly under but it's um but it's it's quite a slight story or maybe it's one hour 47 or something like that it's not like it's it's not like this it's almost like there's not enough story to fill the film but it's got quite a quite a, an interesting pace to it where the film is sort of like happening to you it's kind of very trippy the visuals are very trippy um, it's got a really good cast. Everyone in it is 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 solid. Jolie Richardson's in it. Tommy Chong is in it, um, and um, and then there's some kids in it, and they're all really good. Uh, and it's actually now that I've listened to the short story, it's actually really it's really faithful, but it's all modernised. So there's that, but it's also got these amazing practical effects in it, and I would say there's there's about four or five moments in the movie that were either horrific or deeply disturbing and genuinely like there's a moment there was a moment that happens late on in the film that um uh the little girl goes in her mum's room that's all i'll say and um and fuck me it, it literally i was sort of like it, it really it really uh, tapped into some of my, uh, you know, um, uh, phobias. Yeah, yeah, and it just was, I, and it and it really creeped me out. And even thinking about it now, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But it was a really good film, really entertaining, and Nicolas Cage is great in it. And I remember thinking quite early on, as as it was starting, that um, oh, I'm, uh, I've had a bit of an up and down relationship with Nicolas Cage. Uh, and his films, but like, um, but I, it, it, not that he's the same as Adam Sandler, but he has made a lot of shit, and you can you can sort of tell the difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff, and I think he can as well. So sometimes I think he always puts in, he always tries to put in a good performance, yeah. but he, no, he doesn't always put in a good performance, but he always shows up for work, 
No, but he doesn't always show up for work. But on, but you can tell when he's really trying because he obviously believes in the film. And this is a really great performance for him. I think he's someone who goes away, comes up with a character, and he's that's kind of what he's going to do. I've got the character, this is how it's going to be. And whether it works or not is probably a battle between him and the director. Actually, that's not true. Like you say, there are films where he has just shown up and he's got obviously got zero interest in it. But there's some well, films that are not very good films where he's really good in. Yeah, yeah. Or he's overcompensating sometimes. But there's a film called Left Behind, uh, which uh, he does, like, he's, he's like a cardboard cutout in that film. Yeah, he, he's, he's like, I think that's actually what we talked about yesterday. Like, he, he, it's like he didn't even show up for work in that film. And it's, it's a really weird one where he's sort of like just going through the motions. But that's, a, that's an odd film anyway. Anyway, I highly recommend... Uh, Colour Out of Space, which is, I think that's available on Amazon, but you've got to pay for it. But it's worth the money, I think. Um, it's sort of like the spiritual sequel to, um, it's H.P. Lovecraft, so it's like a spiritual sequel to The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, um, In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter, or Annihilation. So you could sort of like watch this on a double bill with Annihilation. And then also what the guy was saying yesterday was that it's sort of got a lot in common with Hereditary as well, because it's about a family that's sort of going through a thing in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, let's do some fan mail. So, dear Nick and Nat, I've just listened to the show with Henry Normal. What a great guest. This new fan club from Camp Covid is full of absolute legends. You guys are rock stars. Talking of rock stars, I have a question for Nick. Nick, which music artist do you like apart from the great Alice Cooper? Cheers, Caroline. Well, I really love Steve Forbert. I really love Dolly Parton. I really uh, love uh, Otis Redding. And uh, I really love, um, this is a weird one, I really like Reef at the moment, the band Reef. They're just about to celebrate the 25th anniversary to the album Glow, which is still a good album. Um, and uh, they've got a, they had an album out last year, which is incredible. And also... Uh, speaking of the past, I really have got back into listening to the Seahorses, who had like one perfect album, really. Uh, but also, my, probably my second favourite band, the band Thunder, funnily enough. Okay. Howdy! I've just seen a film with a nude scene, full dick flick of the actor. <laughs> How do you feel about nude scenes? And would you do one? I'd be up for seeing it. Massimo. How do, how do I feel about nude scenes? I, I think nude scenes, I've got no no issue with it. It depends where it sort of takes you out of the film, doesn't it? Or whether that is the intention itself. I watched Basic Instinct uh, this week. Uh, it's sort of like Hitchcock meets Brian De Palma meets Giallo uh, with a Paul Verhoeven sheen to it. Uh, with all the special, with the practical effects by Rob Bottin, who did oh, yeah. the special effects on John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, uh, I haven't got a problem with nudity. I do think that there's a bit in Gone Girl where you just see uh, Ben Affleck's um, uh, plump dick in the shower towards the, it's like 10 minutes before the end of the film. That's a bit odd because it comes out of nowhere. Mm. And you just see like a shot of his dick in the shower, and you like. Yeah, I think it's he's got worse. ten minutes. Yeah, it's got worse ten minutes before the end. Worse if it's a star, because I think it's it is going to take you out of the film. It, it's it's a bit odd to put it ten minutes before the end of the film when there's been 
no setup for it. By the way, we're going to see his dick later. It's weird. <laughs> um, but I, no, I haven't got a problem with nudity. I don't want to do it. I don't think anyone wants to see me naked, so um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Hello, lovelies. What a great show last week. Henry Norman was a fabulous guest. I've never heard any interview with him prior to last week, and I thought it was great. Nick, if you're reading this out in a silly voice, then you're in trouble. Next time I see you, fuck you, you fucking cunt. Uh, this week, as well as Five Star Fan Club, I've been a fan of the. Salisbury Poisonings, 16 Shots, and Amy. Apparently, Saturday is the 45th anniversary of Jaws. Uh, this is Karen. Don't get on this Jaws bandwagon, Karen. Fucking hell, you had all this time to see it. You only watched it for the first time last year and you didn't get it. I take it that you've already chatted about this. I'm intending to celebrate, but no, we haven't. I take it you've already been chatting about the 45th. Then you put fucking words into our mouths. We'll take this fucking show any merry way we fucking want and keep your fucking opinions and suggestions to yourself. I take it that you've already chatted about this. I'm intending to celebrate by watching it again. Yeah, I'm finally getting on board. Siding with the shark and being bitterly disappointed when Hooper doesn't get eaten. Great film, but wrong ending. It's the perfect ending. It's a perfect movie. Anyway, I hope you have a lovely time chatting with each other today and making another great show. Fuck off. I look forward to catching it on Friday. Stay safe and stay happy, Karen. I knew it was you, Karen. Um, thanks for your email. Dear Nick and Nat, your show is ace. What have you been fans of this week? That's what the fucking show is. Fucking... Listen. Listen with your ears. All right? I started watching Doctor Who this week, and I find it quite cool. What do you think? Yeah, it's fine. Hello to Malta. Is that, is that someone from oh, Malta? That's, that's, oh, that's actually... No, I think it's hello to Malta. I think Andrew oh, was right. literally in. Uh, okay, cool. That's all our fan mail for this week. Let's play uh, the song, and then we'll get our guest on. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do this one. Dirty Love by Thunder. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back in uh, the studios. My name is Nick. This is... Still Nathaniel Metcalf. Nathaniel Metcalf. And now we are joined uh, by living rock legend uh, 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 and lead guitarist and songwriter of Thunder, uh, Luke Molly. Hello, everybody. Very nice to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. How are you doing? You all right? Yeah, good. Just, you know, grinding it out like everybody's at the minute, I guess. Just uh, good. No, it's, to be honest, it doesn't make a lot of difference to me. I'm just stuck in my room ignoring everybody writing songs. So it's just the same as usual. <laughs> and where are you, um, lockdown? Uh, Brighton. Well, Hove. Hove, actually. Oh. Very yeah, good. you live around the corner from my, uh, my friend from uni, don't you? That's correct, yes. Um, so, um, uh, we were just talking about lockdown and how it's difficult to promote stuff at the moment. Because, yeah. uh, obviously, me and Matt are comedians, and I had to uh, delay a tour. I think it's to next May, April and May, or March, April, May, which is kind of like such like a weird thing to like delay something by a year. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you, in lockdown, have been cycling loads. That's true. And yes, so, I, I, so is Nathaniel. Ah, okay. 
Well, well, I say loads. I haven't cycled in 30 years, so I'm like, uh, I'm sort of wobbly and trying to learn how to do it again. But you are you a keen cyclist? Yeah, I'm not really. I mean, I, I do... I, I do odd charity things. Um, uh, you know, I did one in Egypt about 10 years ago, and that was the first time I got on a bike for 30 years. And then um, another one sort of came up this summer. But it coincided with me getting the bike out. So as soon as lockdown started, I just thought, well, I, you know, I can't go to the gym. I need to do something. So I got the bike out and started riding up and down the coast. It's, it's great here because there's a coastal path that goes along, uh, but I think it's about 20 odd miles. So you don't have to really engage with, with the traffic. So it, it's, it's very good. Um, Same here. I'm, I'm, I'm scared stiff of traffic. So I'm just trying to do any, I'll go anywhere where I don't have to go anywhere frightening. Yeah. yeah. So, I, and then I got roped into doing this. Well, not roped in. I had volunteered. Um, every year there's a ride, a charity ride that goes from, it's usually Alexander Palace to uh, Castle Donington, where Download Festival takes place. And it goes on over three days, and it's the three days before the festival starts. And it's 175 miles, I think. So the idea this year was um, to do it virtually, or you can do it, on, you could do it on the road, you could do it on an exercise bike, uh, whichever way you could. Um, and I opted to, to, to do it. Um, but somewhat stupidly, halfway through, I got all enthusiastic, and uh, some of the people had, had, had gone to sort of, because obviously it's, Donington Frost Festival, it's the heavy metal truants. So it's all 666. So the real lunatics did 666 miles in 12 days. Um, I was a semi-lunatic. I did 333 in 12 days. <laughs> um, but it's great, actually. I, I lost like five kilos or something. I, I, amazing. Um, yeah, you look like, like you're in incredible shape at the moment. I do. I'm really, I'm the fittest I've been for years. It's very strange. Um, Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's really odd because I'm 60 in two days' time. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, oh, the, day of the, the day of the show. This comes uh, out on yeah. Friday. Yeah. So happy birthday. Happy, uh, like, we'll pretend uh, it's uh, like, uh, now. We'll pretend yeah, so, it's now. Happy 60th. Yes. Well done. Uh, it, it's, it's bloody terrifying. I, God knows how I got here. I, it's, just, it's, it's amazing. You know, one minute you're, you're, you're in your 20s and ha, ha, ha. Life goes on forever, and the next minute it's bus pass time. Uh, <laughs> it does that happen. But that's it, because uh, London's been around for like 30 years, so that's half your life, and you spent yeah, half your life in the same band. At yeah, what point good. did you go, well, that, this is my career, I'm doing this for the long haul? Or do you imagine it like that? When you get into a band like that, do you think, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life? Uh, no, because obviously, <laughs> you, 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 you know, you assume that, Nobody, nobody's going to want to come and see you when, you, when you're, you know, when you're an old git. And but interestingly, because we're the age we are, the generation of musicians before us, uh, you know, it's the Stones or Zeppelin or whoever it is or the Who, yeah, all of those musicians are still playing, still attracting audiences, and, and um, fortunately, so are we. So it's enabled us to keep doing this uh, and allowed us to have a, you know, a nice career. So. Um, we, we're very lucky, to be honest. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, because um, obviously I'm a massive Alice Cooper fan, and Alice Cooper always said that he's going to keep going until... Because um, I think Mick Jagger is something like five years older than him, and he's like saying that when Mick Jagger retires, Alice Cooper's going to go to the age that Mick Jagger was, and then maybe he'll retire at that age. Um, and uh, uh, it's kind of like... Because you, you, you were just... 
you were literally just on tour with Alice Cooper just as lockdown started, weren't you? That's, yeah, that's right. Um, rock over Germany. Slightly odd concept. It's like a 40-piece orchestra, a house band, and various guest sort of artists get up and perform. And uh, Alice was top of the bill. Uh, we did it. Uh, there was a guy that sings for Man for Man's Earth Band. There was an old mate Rouse and, and a few other people. Uh, you know, it was great fun, yeah? It's really easy. All you have to do is like four of your most popular tunes and then you jump up at the end for the encore, which, uh, being as Alice was the headliner, was Schools Out. So it's great. So we got to play Schools Out with the great man. And, um, yeah, fantastic. And uh, it was him and his guitar player, Tommy, Tommy Hendrickson, mm-hmm. and, uh, who's, who's a lot of fun. He, uh, he's great. I mean, we'd sort of be standing at the stage, sort of just waiting for Alice to here and I said, where's he now? Is he, is he warming up? He said, no, man, he's back there. He's eating cheese and watching Kung Fu movies. That's all he does. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine, imagine Alice Cooper would be sort of having some sort of vegan diet and sort of juice. Not at all. No, he, he's, he's amazing. He's, he's incredibly fit looking. I mean, he's, you know, he moves, still moves well across the stages. Nick, Nick will tell you, Nick he sees him every time he's on tour, but um, fantastic. He's great. And he's such a lovely nice, un, un, unaffected sort of normal guy. That's, that's the nicest thing about him is he's, he's lovely. I was very privileged to play golf with him a couple of years ago and, um, and we went around for 18 holes, and, um, which is about, probably about four hours, I guess. And in that time, I don't think he stopped talking and it was anecdote after anecdote about hanging out in LA in the early 70s with John Lennon and Brian Mills. I mean, I, I, I just wish I had a recorder with me and recorded it all. It was fantastic. Uh, I just sat there open mouth, you know. But uh, he's, he's very nice. Nice man. Because I went to see you uh, support Alice Cooper in uh, Berlin. Uh, was that last year or the year before? Oh, I think that was probably about three years ago. Um, and funny enough, it was the same venue we were in uh, the night that all the rest of the tour got cancelled in Berlin. Um, and... And we actually had to jump on the plane and come home the next day. It was really irritating because it was two and a half weeks ago and everybody was just kind of getting into the, the swing of it. And uh, uh, they did try and rearrange it, but I think, like everything at the moment, it's how long's a piece of string. Nobody knows when to arrange anything for. That's the problem. Uh, yeah. Because no. I, uh, I watched an Alice Cooper interview where he was literally saying that he was on stage and then they came off stage and they still had all their costume and makeup on and they were literally told, right, you've got to get in the bus and go home. Yeah. And then they just got on a bus with all of their stage gear on, went to the airport, went home, and then they were in lockdown. And it's yeah. kind of like it ended just like like that. It's just sort of like, right, tour's over for now. Yeah, it's very odd. Um, the other uh, American actor on tour was um, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and uh, it was also a nice chat. And uh, it's a funny thing, because with, with British musicians, American musicians have got a slight reputation for being, like, whingy and... and oh, I can't go there, it's a bit too cold, I can't go there, it's too hot, or, or there might be a terrorist, you know. There's this, but um, they have to say both of them were like, oh, fuck it, man, I'm really enjoying this, I don't want it to end, you know. So, uh, yeah, but what can you do? Well, it's oh. the entertainment industry. Um, but, because but, uh, obviously, you know, I mean, I think the first time I met you, yeah. uh, it was backstage at the O2 Arena. That's a really, I mean, it's a bit of a self-indulgent story, but, I mean, it's a, it's a really bizarre story of how I met you. Um, but um, uh, but when I went backstage, should, should, should I say it? I should, I'll yeah, say it. 
I'll say it, right. So the, way, the way I met you was, um, so, well, maybe we should do it a bit more, like, historically, but, like, um, so about 2006 or 2007, do you remember, do you remember, it wasn't Donington, it was the Melton Keynes Bowl when you did Monsters of Rock? Yes, yeah. That was, that was, I think that was with Alice and uh, is it Journey. It was, I think it was Alice, Ted Nugent, Journey, yeah. New, Deep Purple. Oh, yes, and it was it. The hottest, the hottest day of the year, um, we all got absolutely burnt by the sun and we were just drinking. But it was such an amazing day. It was like one of the best, it was one of the best gigs I've ever been. And aside from maybe Ted Nugent, who was a little bit, okay, sure. But, um, but yeah, good. you were like one of the, there was, there was you, which I think was the first time I'd seen you live. Yeah. Uh, but, I'd, I, but I was aware of your stuff before then. And it was, uh, and there was you, and then there was Alice Cooper, and then there was Deep Purple. But by the time Deep Purple came on, we were like, well, it's not really going to get any better than this. So I think we left halfway through Deep Purple, right. which maybe I regret now. But at the time, it was just like, it's not really going to get any better than that. But that was an amazing day. And um, so I was sort of like, I was really into, I was really into Thunder. Um, and um, I went, just when I got the job on Uncle, I had to write six songs. So I went to Egypt uh, with my girlfriend at the time and basically I got food poisoning and I wrote all the songs for Uncle while I was sat on the toilet. And, um, uh, and, and, and while I wasn't writing songs, I was reading this fan-made book about... Because I didn't know anything about you as people. Like, I didn't know any of your background or where you came, uh, where you came from, where you were born, any of that. And there was basically there was this fan that had made this booklet, which was a compilation of... Uh, all of your, every single uh, interview that you'd ever done in Melody Maker or Kerrang or anything like across Enemy, all of, all of like the public, they're just basically, all of your public interviews, they just basically brought everything together in one volume. And I just read it all. I read it all on holiday. And then I came back from holiday and then we filmed Uncle and I had um, uh, this uh, makeup artist who looked after me called Tara McDonald. And um, I had sort of like Alice Cooper band patches on my jacket. And she said, are you into music? And I was like, yeah, I'm into music. She goes, what sort of music are you into? And I said, well, I like Alice Cooper. And then we didn't talk about music for, the, for, for, for like seven weeks. And I'd just done Edinburgh, where I'd done uh, One Man Megamyth, which was a show about Evil Knievel. And halfway through the show, um, it was about Evil Knievel and this cat that I befriended that died. And at the end of the show, I get this stuffed cat and I kick it over... Uh, 11 miniature London buses, right? And um, and for my walk on music, I played your song, which was uh, Stand Up, because it was a stand-up show, uh, but also uh, it was like this really kind of like big kind of like number that gets all the audience pumped up. And, um, and about halfway through the run of my Edinburgh run, I realised that one of the lyrics in your song was Go and Kick a Cat. And I hadn't made that connection until halfway through the run where I was kicking a cat every day. And I was like, that's mental that I've used this song. That's crazy. So we got to the end of filming, and as a, as a gift to all of the cast and crew of Uncle, I gave everyone free tickets to come and see my show. And then Tara came to see my show, and um, uh, we was at the Bloomsbury Theatre, and at the end I was, like, signing stuff. And Tara comes up to me at the end, and she goes you play my husband's uh, music before you come on stage. And I'm like, who's your husband? 
and we'd been working together for seven weeks and I'd just read a book about thunder like I think I was probably finishing it off while, while we were starting uncle and she said Luke Morley and I was like fuck off it's your husband Luke Morley and then within the week you were talk you were doing a gig at the O2 arena with um was it Mot the Hoople and it Fish yeah that's right yeah and what was even weirder than that was we got tickets. So we got those, we got we got tickets to come and see you, uh, and we got these seats. And when we got to the seats, there was someone else sat in our seats, right? Uh, and it was like, oh, but it was kind of like we, so we found some other seats and we sat in those. And at the end, we came backstage and uh, we met you, and you said, "Did you have good? Did you did you have good seats?" And I said, well, there was some, I don't even know why I mentioned it, but I said, well, someone was sat in them, so we sat somewhere else. And you went, oh, who was sat in them? And I looked over, and the woman that was sat in our seats was, like, behind you. And I was like, well, she was. And, and you were like, well, that's my sister. <laughs> and it was just like, out of the whole O2 arena, your sister was sat in our seats. It was well, mental. Um, but backstage, there was someone like uh, Jimmy Page was backstage. So Jimmy Page has been a big fan of yours. Yeah, he's um, yeah, he he, he came along to see us. I think first time in uh, laughing on John was in '92 tour, and um, yeah, he came along with without the guy who was our then agent, and um, we we were on stage, finished finished the main set, and we were just literally between the set and the encore, nip, nip backstage, have a quick wee or beer or whatever it was. And I went in the dressing room, and there's this sort of guy in a shabby old raincoat hunched over the beer, and I thought, who's that? So I said, excuse me. And it was Jimmy Page. I went, uh, have whatever you like. Help yourself. Like, what great honor, you know. So I said to him, that's suppose you want to come on stage. He went, oh, no, I haven't done that for years. I went, oh, don't worry. But then after that, yeah, we, we sort of became quite reasonably friendly and um, I hung out with him a little bit, in the, or quite a lot in the 90s here and there, because the guy who was his, was his minder, um, was an, a Kiwi guy called Rangy, and Rang used to work for us, and so he knew me very well. And, um, and I think at the time, I think Jimmy was basically, um, he was kind of mad about town, didn't really know what to do with himself, and uh, we went out for a curry on his, I think it would have been his 52nd birthday, maybe, round about then, and we went for a curry, um, and then we went to this pub, it was the most surreal thing, we went to this pub in Notting Hill, it was a kind of old West Indian pub, it was full of West Indian guys and Irish guys, all playing darts, so I played darts with Jimmy Page in this pub in Notting Hill, it was very odd, he was terrible, I thought he was going to kill somebody and start a fight, darts were going everywhere, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was great fun. Um, he's very nice. He, he, he's, uh, he's very, very proper. He doesn't swear ever. Never swears. Uh, he's very extremely polite, but very um, knowledgeable, very inquisitive about everything, about music particularly. He'll, he'll say stuff like, how do you get your guitar sound? I was like, you're, you're asking me how I get my guitar sound. And, you know, um, and great. And he, 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 if you get engaged in a conversation about music or about Zeppelin, about how he did things, he was quite open about everything and that. But very nice, um, you know. And, yeah, he's been along the series a few times over the years. And always nice to see him when he does turn up. When you meet people like that from that sort of older generation of musicians, are you... Does, does it feel like you're talking to colleagues or are you, like, a fan? Well, I'm still a massive Zeppelin fan. I mean, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Who, uh, probably my three favourite bands 
or maybe maybe the Beach Boys and Steely Dan from America as well. But I just yeah, so Jimmy Page would be kind of pretty close to the top of my personal mountain. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, but he, he's so disarming that you don't um, you know you, there's some people you meet who are very famous and they want to, you to know exactly how famous they are. Um, but he's not like that at all. He's very lucky. He did something really nice once. I was at a, a gig, watching a gig at Hammersmith. I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was Whitesnake. And he was there watching. And there was a kind of VIP do in the bar afterwards. And there were a lot, quite a lot of punters there. And he was in, involved in the conversation with the guy who's a promoter. And a friend of mine was there with his teenage son. And he said to me, well, look, he said, um, I know you know Jimmy. Is there any chance you could introduce Connor, my son, to him? So I said, well, I'll go and see if he's not too busy. I'll ask him if I'll come over. So I went over. And the guy that Jimmy was talking to at that point was obviously incredibly boring because he was kind of, his eyes were wandering. I said, Jimmy, sorry about him. Would you do us a favor? There's a young lad over here. He'd love to be just, thanks. Look, great. Yes, I've got to go. And he came over and he chatted to this young lad um, for probably 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, and he just, you know, full eye contact all the time. Just completely engaged. He, he's, he's just a, he's a nice guy. Um, yeah. And it's good, you know, it's nice when your heroes are nice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you were like, last year you did like a spoken word tour. Kind of, yeah. It was myself and Danny at Singer and Thunder. Um, we, the, the deal was we went out, there's a guy called Mick Wall, who's a um, rock journalist who's been around many a year. And um, Mick knows us very well. I think he first wrote about us in, well, I think probably about two weeks after the band started in, in 89. So we've known him ever since. And the deal was, we went to kind of uh, sort of spike or small theatre type venues, um, held between I don't know 500, 800 people, and it was just basically a, a, a chat through the band's history, punctuated by I think we did six or seven songs every night, um, and we just told stories um, and uh, took a few questions uh, from the audience, and, and that was it really. And, and it's just it's just really like sitting sitting on the lounge at the back of a tour bus with a few beers and telling a few war stories. Um, but, of course, audiences never get to see any of that side of it, so it's, it's, uh, it's a fun thing to do. Um, and and we, we didn't actually realise, I mean, you guys, obviously, you, you're comedians, so you, you, you sit down and you have to put a show together and you work it all out and, and uh, you know, and you have to try it out some of the time. It's quite a complicated thing. We, we normally just write a set list and go and play, but this was very different. So we found ourselves probably going through a similar process to what you guys do. And every night we'd tell a few stories, like, that didn't really work. Get, get a shot of that one. What about that one? Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Shall I tell? Yeah, I'll tell that one. You tell that one. And then, and then you start to kind of um, obviously get spontaneous with it as well. And, and, and then it starts to improve once the audience reacts. You know, you know, you know the drill. Um, and by the end of it, we went on for a month. We did it four nights a week for a month. By the end of it, it was really, we got it down quite slick. Um, so we are going to do it again in the future. We're looking at shows at the minute, but it probably won't be for another 18 months or so, but we're going to do it again. But I didn't know if I'd enjoy it, funnily enough. But it, was, it felt like easy money just sitting there talking and playing the odd song. It was, it was great. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, don't tell people it's easy money. No, no, no. <laughs> it's much harder for you guys. The thing is, you have to... <laughs> you guys have to... People laugh. We don't. You know, we could be serious. You know, it's, it's um... sure. Oh yeah. Well, I don't feel the pressure of making people laugh. 
Uh, I just think you get what you pay for. You get, I'm, all of my gigs are dirt cheap. Um, Danny's one of the best front men in the business, I think. He's kind of like got this really like great... Um, he's got this great way about him where he's just full of energy and he gets the audience on board. But he's also... Um, he's quite sarcastic and rude to the audience sometimes, you know what I mean? But in a really fun, kind of friendly way where he's not like chasing the audience. He kind of like... Uh, he doesn't feel like he's seeking our approval. He's just kind of like, you know, he'll get people to sing along and then he'll tell us that we were rubbish and that we've got to do it again. And, I, you know, it's just like the Thunder gigs are just so... They're just so much fun. Um, and I, it's not even a question. I'm just telling you how much I love your band. All this and the spoken word stuff, it's all just another aspect of showbiz, isn't it? You're putting on a show, so you want to entertain people and it's just another way of entertaining them by being funny or making a joke between songs, or involving the audience. Well, there's the other, I mean, the other thing as well that we mustn't overlook, of course, is that, you know, the, now record sales are not what they use, or CD sales are not what they once were, it's another source of income, and, and that's not to be sniffed at, you know. Mm. Um, and with Spotify and, uh, and the like, all the streaming platforms paying, not paying us more than, like, the dirt from under their fingernails, if we're lucky, um, <laughs> And you know we have to look at look at these kind of alternative things. But fortunately, like I said, it was really enjoyable, so I'd gladly do it again. I saw a quote from you earlier that. Oh no, go on. Look, go on. What are you going to say? I was just going to say I saw a quote from you earlier that was saying that when you split up in, was it the sort of late two thousands, that you were talking about a lot of it. There is this sort of economic element to it where you just want to you want to do more, but there's this um, that there are the economics around putting on tours and the money you're going to make. And I was thinking of it in terms of comedy as well, like there's how there's so many like double acts or like sketch groups and things that have to break up because if you're, if you're earning, if you're in a double act, you're only earning the same as like a, a solo act is, and you've got to split that money if you're in a double act or a sketch group. And I was just thinking of the economics of it and thinking of like the career you've had being that 30 plus year career, just all the changes you've seen and how you've had to approach it and be like, well, this is a career how am I going to keep making money for the rest of my life? Mm. Well, I think we, we were very fortunate in that we, when, when we started, uh, it was still the era where uh, major labels were investing heavily in talent. So, um, you know, we got to spend a lot of EMI's money uh, very early on. And in that process, we acquired a, 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 a very kind of large and, and, and you know, faithful fan base. And I think we we were actually quite ahead of our time un, unwittingly in that we, the thing that everybody does after show, VIP, meet and greets, everybody does it now. Uh, we, we just did it uh, naturally. I think the first gig we ever did, there was probably about 20 people there and we invited them all in the dressing room for a drink. And it just went on from there. So after every show, we would do an after show meet and greet. Um, and it didn't occur to us to charge people for it until much later. Um, but we still, to this day, we do have a VIP ticket you can you can buy, which guarantees you get in to see the band sound check and, and you get into the after show. But we also still give away like uh, quite a large number of after show passes every night um, where the punks can get in and, and come and say hello and stuff. And I think it's important to do that. Um, yeah, it's. Um, uh, what were we talking about? So I've got off. I've got off piece there. That's more like about how the business has changed and things. Go All on, right. I think. I think. The, what's the, what? What's it like doing a sound check with? Because uh, I see that. I, I see that offered as sort of like part of a package with lo lots of bands. What is watching a sound check like? 
Well, I don't know. I've never watched one, apart from me. What's it like being on stage with people watching you do that? I mean, it's OK. I mean, you know, you're kind of wandering around. You, you know, you might be wandering around in your, you know, you might be the full regalia on. You might be wandering around in your casuals or, you know, or in your shorts if it's a hot day. And, uh, you know, that basically, they, I, I look at it from the point of view that the audience are kind of paying to come in and see us play, which we will do, but they're coming into our kind of workspace and we're slightly half off duty. So, um you know, you might wander, you know, you wander around with a cup of tea and you know, might chat to them off the stage and ask how they, how they are. It's very casual. I mean, um, in a sound check, you can't go out there and strike the pose. You'd feel like a complete cock if you did that. So you, you have to kind of <laughs> the situation for what it is and embrace it, I think. Um, you know, you know, we're, you know as a, we're all kind of quite friendly people, so we we'll quite happily chat away to everybody. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's just kind of take the... Um, you know, audiences get nervous as well. Like, you know, we must remember that. And when you're on stage, it's easy to forget that sometimes. And uh, if if you can break the atmosphere, uh, you know, and break the ice and, and be like, I mean, more well, Nick, I've seen you a few times to know that the audience gets very nervous at your shows, but, but that's part of the show. Um, yeah. In case you suddenly spontaneously involve them. <laughs> you know. but, that's, but that's good. That's part of the show. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's, that kind of, Un, unspoken kind of uh, bridge between the audience and, and, and the act. You know, you've got to you've got to reach out across that in the sound check. But I, you know, obviously during the gig, it's a different matter. But um, you know, it's, it's almost like the, I, I look upon it. It's a bit like you know, looking behind the curtain briefly, isn't it? Seeing what's really going on. Like the end of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Judy Garland, you know the one. Um, Where's the bus? Where's the bus? Yeah, it's behind. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's behind the scenes, and so they kind of like it's not necessarily that they get access to you, but they get a glimpse of what it is to see, you know, their favourite band uh, get ready to put on the show that they're going to see, and it's sort of like a little glimpse that only a few people uh, get, you know, to see. Oh, it's not. It's not just a case of like um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you walk from the dressing room, you come on stage, and it's all ready. It's a case of like it's a process, and you're putting on a show, and it's a performance, and you get a glimpse behind that. That sounds really cool. Um, it, how long? Um, so, if we go back to the beginning, so yeah. when did you, you? When did you and Danny first meet? Um, we met at school. Uh, we well, we were both eleven years old. Um, although we weren't sort of, um, I would say we were mates for the first couple of years, particularly, um, we, you know, I did my thing, he did his thing. Um, and then, um, we, you know, you know, it's like when you're that age, you know, you kind of social kind of groups kind of grow, don't they? Or, or kind of some people oscillate towards each other and stuff. And eventually we were sort of in the same group of uh, the social group and going to the same sort of teenage parties and stuff. And, um, he, I remember once him and another load of kids from school, because I lived quite close to the school, came around um, to my place at lunchtime so we could all smoke. <laughs> and uh, he didn't smoke, Danny didn't smoke. So we went, I said, well, we don't, we don't sit in the smoke room, we go sit in the bedroom. And he went and sat in the bedroom and there was a drum kit set up in, in the bedroom and he, it, he, was, uh, he said it was a bit of a road to Damascus moment. He looked at it and there were kind of angelic halos and lights shooting out of it and stuff. And then he decided that he wanted to be in a band, but he, obviously couldn't play anything so the next i think next monday in school we were in an economics lesson where everybody i just go to go up the back and sleep usually and he nudged he said you know oh well, you know um, I, your band you know I, i'm a really good singer and i said hey so i'm a really good singer i said no you're not far from 
He said, no, I am. I'm really good. I'm really good. He said, and I've got a microphone. I went, oh, he must be serious then. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and he didn't have a microphone. That's what's funny about it. He had to borrow it from his uncle. <laughs> um, so anyway, so yeah, and then we, and he came round and, you know, well, we were kids. I mean, we were 15 years old. It was chaos, you know, and we had one little amplifier in, in the, the drummer's attic and it was a load of noise. But through all the noise, he plugged in a microphone and after the usual kind of screeching feedback, when he actually started singing, it was like, bloody hell, he's really good. Um, so that was it. Um, and that was uh, 1975. So That's a great story. That's a real movie image of walking into a bedroom and having the drums and things. It feels like it feels like a real kind of movie moment, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, well, I suppose it was for him. I, I, I didn't, I, I'd sort of been in bands since, sort of, to various degrees of seriousness since I was sort of 12, and there was all stuff laying around the house, you know, various mates would leave their guitars around and stuff, so I didn't sort of think too much about it, but obviously for him it was a thing, you know. Um, but yeah, it's uh, amazing that we, you know, well, it's great. It's great we're both still here and both still alive. <laughs> how many, how many, how many bands were you in together before you uh, hit on Thunder? Okay, so our first band together was called Nothing Fancy, and that's because it was it was Nothing Fancy. Uh, <laughs> and then that was that was kind of the first sort of three years. That was seventy five to seventy eight, and about seventy eight we would have been eighteen. We started to play in local pubs when there used, still used to be a kind of a good pub circuit in London and we, you know, hawk our tapes around and eventually get the odd gig. And then, obviously, being South East London lads, we, uh, there was one pub called the White Swan in Greenwich where we used to play regularly. And in there was also uh, a couple of mates' bands and uh, there was this kind of whole scene. It was a biker's pub and all the bands used to hang out and stuff together. And, um, yeah, that was about sort of 78, 79. And then, all the bands used to kind of come up and watch each other's shows and stuff. And then there was this rather objectionable bloke that always used to shout, rubbish, at the end of the bar, all the best. And he came up to me all night and said, I think you're all mental. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you've got three really average bands here. If you put all the best bits together, you could have a really good band. And I just thought, he's not wrong. He isn't wrong. So um, I just basically said, Danny, look, this is what I think we should do. If we're going to do this seriously, we need to get the best band we can have. And... Um, yeah, and so we sort of pinched Harry from one band and another lad called Nick Linden, bass player from another band. And then uh, literally probably two weeks before that, all three bands had gone in for this talent contest at the Woolwich Tram Shed. And uh, I think it was a hundred quid prize money or something, I can't remember. And um, but after we played, this amazing guy came up to me. He was about six foot four, wearing a cape. And you just didn't see people in South East London wearing a cape. <laughs> and he, looked like, he looked like Christopher Lee in Dracula. He was very sort of distinguished looking, grey hair swept back, a bit bald at the front. And he was very, very posh. And he said, my name's Robert Wes. I used to manage the kinks. Uh, could I speak to you in the gentleman's lavatory? And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> we, you know, a few of us went in the loo, a bit suspicious of this guy. And he, and he was exactly who he said he was. And, um, and you know, after some kind of interesting... Um, you know, I mean, he was so posh, it was stupid. He, I don't think he'd ever... How he didn't have a nosebleed being in Woolwich, I don't know. But it, it was, uh, you know, we, we got to know him. And he managed us for eight years. And during that process, uh, we did our first record deal with CBS and um, whatever. But he said that he thought Nothing Fancy was a terrible name. And he was probably right. So um, we, we, we had to change the name. And then I think it was him, actually, that came up with Terraplane. We couldn't think of a name. Um, 
and it's kind of the one we hated the least. So we became Terraplane after that, and then from Terraplane to Thunder. And what was so the music of, then? Was it the same? Was it still kind of hard rock music, or was it? Yeah, I mean, we did. It's weird. It's, it's weird now because at the start of Terraplane, I think I'd only written about four songs, and they were terrible. They were really bad, and. Um, and of course, this guy, he'd managed Ray Davis, you know, one of the great writers, and he'd managed Jerry Rafferty at one point as well. So he said to me, you've really got to work on the songwriting, dear. It's really not up, up it's not cutting the mustard at all. So um, I did. I got stuck in and started really kind of concentrating on trying to write good songs. And um, it took me a couple of years, really, before I came up with anything half decent. Um, and, um, yeah, so out of that, um, you know, we managed to get together enough material for CBS to get interested. But we were, the thing was that the band was always kind of good live, even when we were playing other people's songs. Um, you know, because the band could all play really well. And, and Danny was obviously, as Nick said, you know, a good natural front man. So we always kind of gained, every time we played, we always kind of seemed to gain gain audience. You know, there always seemed to be more people next time. So we knew we had that going for us. But it was just a question of finding the, the right kind of musical uh, context for it all. And that didn't really happen until Thunder. Um, I think we had to go through the Terraplane thing. Terraplane was very sort of, it was the 80s, and, and we were signed to CBS or Epic. And um, they were like the best pop label um, that in the 80s. They had Paul Young, Sade, Wham, uh, all these fantastic pop acts that were creaming it in. Um, and we were signed by a guy called Muff Winwood. Muff was the bass player in Spencer Davis and uh, Steve Winwood's brother. And he was great, but he was constantly trying to turn this into a pop act because it's all they knew how to market. And so we had this struggle where we were kind of, well, I don't know, it doesn't feel quite right. You know, we'll go with it. They're a record company. They must know what they're talking about sort of attitude. And, of course, they didn't. Um, but in that process, we, we learnt really by mis making as mi a, a gazillion mistakes what we didn't want to do. Um, and we came out, the, I mean, the, the, the last, the kind of crowning turd in the water pipe of that relationship really was when we, the, the second album we made for them, um, I'd written a few songs with this guy called Phil Pickett, who was a really nice guy, but Phil wrote all the Culture Club hits. Um, and uh, it was interesting writing with him. I mean, what we wrote was quite good. It didn't sound anything like us. Um, but um, the record company saw a, a kind of shortcut to us finding a producer. So he then got the job as, uh, it's a bit done a bit sneakily. The next thing we know, he's producing the album and it turned into a kind of 80s keyboard fest. And it's like, can I, can I please can I have a guitar solo, sir? It was a bit like that. Um, and we came out with an album that, that was quite good, but didn't say anything like us. So that was the end of it, really. But having been through that process, I, we, were, we were both of it, uh, Danny and I were both of it pissed off. So we jumped on a plane and went to America for a couple of weeks uh, just to see what was going on, really, because the 80s in England was, uh, you know, for guitar bands, it, it was tough. It was tough. There wasn't much out there. There was this kind of wave of American rock starting up. There was this, kind of, you know, the hair metal thing, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, those kind of bands were just sort of starting. But... Um, it wasn't really until I heard Guns N' Roses, I thought, oh, now that's proper. Um, and it also coincided with Aerosmith coming back uh, with Permanent Vacation. They, they, they'd not been around for a few years. That's an amazing album. That's an amazing album. Yeah, it's great. And um, we went to LA. I heard that album. I thought, this is fantastic. This sounds so good. Who was the engineer? It was a guy called Mike Fraser. said, we need him. We need to start a new band, get this guy to engineer it, and we need to find a great producer. And... Um, 
eventually we, by pure, pure fluke and having uh, the same accountant, we met Andy Taylor. And Andy obviously was also a bit frustrated what guitar player while he was in Duran. Um, and he quit Duran and, and was looking to produce a rock band. Um, and it's one of those lovely things where everything just kind of comes together. Uh, and um, even it was really spooky that I'd written this song that's on the first album called Distant Thunder. And he'd made a solo album called Thunder that I didn't know about. So at that point, so we've got to call the new band Thunder, really, haven't we? It's, you know, and so we did. And yeah, it was that. So during that period, did you always, did you have the sound in your head? Did you know what you wanted to sound like? Or was that the discovery of it? Through yeah, all I, think of- I always kind of, I was sort of new. Um, I suppose, you know, everybody wants to be like a mixture of their idols, don't they? Um, mm. You know, whatever you do. And I wanted us to be a really good British rock band that sounded a bit like The Who, a bit like Zeppelin, a bit like The Faces, and, you know, Bad Company Free, all those bands that, that we loved as kids, really. And um, But it took me, it took as the person who writes the music, it took me a while to get into that kind of place. Um, and because uh, I, start, I, I started writing songs quite late. Most people start in their teens. I didn't, you know, didn't really bother till I was in my twenties. So um, I always think we're sort of ten years behind where we should be. Um, uh, so yeah, so for that reason, being sixty isn't that bad. I'm only fifty, really. Yeah. One of, your, one, of, one of one of the biggest um, uh, early sort of successes was when you did. Um, uh, was it Monsters of Rock at Donington, or was it just a Donington Festival? Yeah, it was, it was called Monsters of Rock, yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah, Castle Donning in 1990, yes. Um, and we, it was funny because we, the band started in 89. Um, we'd made the album, uh, summer of 89. Then we went out and we just decided, um, once again, I'll refer you back to EMI and their, their massive checkbook. They paid for us to tour. Um, so we... You know, we would go and we would support anybody, play everywhere. One night we'd be supporting a soul band, next night a reggae band. We just played and played and played and played. Uh, and we kind of gambled everything on the fact that we, if we played somewhere, we people would like us and they'd get interested. And so we just worked and worked. Um, and during 89, we played, uh, we, we got ourselves a new agent. We got some shows. We did some shows with Aerosmith. They just released Pump. Um, that was great. Uh, we opened for Heart around Europe and the UK. That was great. Um, and all the time, you know, you had a, a very healthy rock press then with Kerrang! and Raw magazine and lots of people writing about rock. Uh, and it was kind of becoming trendy again. So, we, you know, we seemed to, we'd attracted a lot of attention. Um, and because we'd done mainly small gigs, apart from support gigs in, in big venues, we, we didn't kind of... We knew that, you know, we were selling a few records, so we knew there was quite a bit of interest in the band, but we hadn't kind of really done a headline tour, you know, anywhere kind of uh, noticeable, any kind of noticeable venues and noticeable sites. And then we got this opening slot at uh, Castle Donington uh, on the Monsters of Rock, and we, it was funny because the year before um, was cancelled, because the year before that, a couple of kids had got killed when Guns N' Roses were on in a crutch. So out of respect, they cancelled it the following year. And then come the following year, we were the opening act. So there's a bit of pressure on us to, to be good as well. Uh, and then three days before the gig, Danny lost his voice, which was which was useful. Um, so he had, a, had steroid jabs up the arse and wasn't allowed to speak for two days, which in itself is a miracle if you knew him. Believe me, that's, <laughs> that's quite a miracle. So, and then we get to the gig 
and his voice is fine. We go on stage, and I think there was something like 80,000 people. Um, I was so nervous. It's the last time, actually, I, I, got, I got nervous on stage. I'll never be that nervous again. Uh, we walked out on stage, and I didn't actually look at the audience and um, started the first song, and there was this roar, and I, I looked up, and all the hands were in there, and I thought, it's going to be okay. Um, and it was literally our agent who was there, or our promoter, rather, who was there at the side of the stage, told us afterwards, he said, that was so good. He said, so, he said we didn't tell you, if we've got three nights at Hammersmith Odeon on hold, we're going to put them on sale tomorrow. And they sold out. So it was it was like almost all our lives have been leading to that moment. That's not over-dramatising it. It really felt like that. Um, yeah, it was a very special day. And, um, you know, that was... Well, that, gig, that, gig, that gig's on one of... Uh, I think it's on a compilation CD of uh, Thunder Live, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I've definitely heard. I've definitely heard that gig. It's an incredible gig, and uh, Danny, Danny's interaction with the audience is amazing. And um, yeah, you can just you can hear the energy of that gig. Um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's amazing. Um, it's because he wasn't allowed to speak for three days, so it's all been uh, it's all been in there waiting to get out. Funny thing, actually, this, the, just before we went on stage, we had this radio interview. Literally, just before we went on. And everyone's like adrenaline, you can imagine, you know, 80,000 people, you know. And uh, Tommy Vance was, it was live on Radio 1, Tommy Vance was the DJ. Tommy won, and he said, right, okay, boys, he said, uh, you know, this gig, you're going to be great out there, we know you're going to be great, band really wants and fantastic. And, uh, but he said, because he's going out live on the radio, he said, just um, do me a favour. He said, don't swear. So what do you mean? He said, don't swear, it's going out live on the BBC. If you, if you swear... I have to edit, and it's a real pain in the ass. So please don't swear. Well, okay, great. So you know, so we walk out, grab a bit, and then just we walk off towards the stage, and he walked past us, and he looked around, just we went, and he said, "Just remember, no fucking swearing." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he was a good man, Tommy. That's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is. Tell us about that um, that Axel Rose story about when you were drinking with him in Los Angeles. He um, well, basically we. Now, we had a bit of a false start in America because uh, the guy that ran uh, Capital, which was uh, the, the bit of the MI we'd, we'd been signed to in, in America, just hated the band. I mean, he just didn't get it. So um, that was a problem. So we which came back crazy. to Because that, be, that would be Backstreet's back back Symphony, right? Yeah, he didn't get it. This is a guy called uh, Hal Melgram, and he, he'd come from, uh, I can't remember which label he'd come from, but he was in the kind of the Grateful Dead and uh, Crowded House, I think, was his favourite band, and they were on the label. He liked singer and songwriter. He just didn't get rock music at all. Um, That's correct. But Backstreet Symphony is one of the all-time classic rock albums. Well, he didn't think so. So we, <laughs> we came back to EMI in, in London and said, look, you know, this guy's going to bury us. If, you know, you need to release us so we can try and get another deal in America. And after a bit of grumbling, they'd let us go. And that coincided with um, basically uh, three big acts that were on Geffen Records in America, which was Guns N' Roses, uh, Aerosmith and Whitesnake, all somehow got to hear the Thunder album and had all mentioned it to the guy who was head of A&I, this guy called John Kolodner, who's a book of stories in his own right, but we'll come back to that. Um, and um, Kolodner happened to be there in 1990 uh, at at Download, uh, sorry, Donington. Um, he didn't, he wasn't there when we were playing, but he was on the back, he was sitting in the back lounge of Aerosmith's tour bus as they were driving up to the festival. 
And because it was live on the radio, he was like, hey, these guys rock. Um, and Stephen Tyler said to him, that's thunder, I've told you about these guys, they're really good, you should sign them. This is all, um, we knew nothing about this. Um, it also transpires that um, somebody had given Axel Rose a copy of the album and he was running around LA telling everybody how great it was. So all this stuff we going on that we didn't know about. Um, so eventually uh, we had a call from Geffen Records saying, you know, would, you know, we'd, we'd like to talk to you about America. And so we got on a plane and went over there and the deal was done very, very fast. And so then we were on Geffen and um, the night uh, the deal was done, myself and Danny and our then manager went to the Rainbow Bar and Grill, which is the great watering hole in LA that all the rockers used to hang out in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. And uh, we went in there and got, 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 got quite drunk. And I got up to go for a wee and there's all these kind of little booths. It's, uh, it's like a sort of 50s diner almost. And all past this booth, and sitting in this booth is Axel Rose and his, his then wife. And so I went for a wee, came back. I said, excuse me, I was a bit drunk. Excuse me, <laughs> I just want to say thank you very much, blah, blah, blah. And he, I thought well, you were going to stab me in the eye with his fault. He didn't very happy at first. But when I, once I told him who I was, he was, oh, oh, man, I love your band. You guys are great. So when you finished eating, come and join us and have a drink. So he did. Um, and him and his wife came and sat down and uh, I sat next to him and, and we just talked about um, mainly about English music for about three hours. And he, you know, was nothing like you'd expect. Very knowledgeable, very bright, uh, an amazingly deep voice. Yeah, right there, you know, because he sings so high. So the voice was a bit of a shock. Um, but really, really nice. And, uh, you know, he talked about how much he loved you know, David Bowie, Elton John and Led Zeppelin and uh, great, you know, and he was saying how much he loved their album and he said that, and his wife butted in and said, whenever we have a fight, Axel plays Love Walked In and then that always sorts it out for us. It's like, well, this is great. Um, and yeah, so that was it. It was only one and only time I ever met him, but he was, he was, you know, really nice. I mean, there's lots of evidence to the contrary, but not, not in my experience, you know. Didn't he uh, get in his car and then when he switched his car on, it started yeah, playing on it? Yeah. Well, that night when we left the restaurant, we, we both wandered out at the same time, uh, you know, and you get the old valet parking, so you give the keys to the valet. So the valet went off and got his car and pulled it up as, as we're still tacking, and Dirty Love was pounding out of his stereo, and he said, see, I told you I loved you guys, and, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and off he drove down the Sunset Strip with Dirty Love blaring out the back of his car. So... Um, yeah, amazing. Uh, That's amazing. Mm. Um, uh, we've got to we've we've come to the end of another amazing uh, lockdown show. Um, um, yeah, God, we could we could we could have talked for another four hours, basically. Um, you are saying that you haven't got much to plug at the moment because of lockdown. But um, just going back to this cycling thing, you would do you were raising money for charity, weren't you? That's right. It was basically the. Um, um, the heavy metal truants. If you go to the, the heavy metal truants dot, dot com or sorry dot co dot uk, uh, it will tell you all about it. Basically, yes, it's a, a ride every year that goes from London to, to Download or to Donington, and raises money for Teenage Cancer Trust, Child Line, Save the Children, and uh, one other I can't remember at the moment. Uh, but all kids charities, and uh, yeah, it's great. We raised one hundred and fifty grand this year, so that's that's all good. Oh, okay. Can people still donate money now? I think they can, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so heavy metal truants. Just Google that, it'll come straight up. Great. Okay. So we're going to play a game with you now, Luke. Okay. 
not be taken The game up. is called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. Okay. That's how you earn points. Beginning with Bob Hoskins. But is Billy Bob Thornton better or worse than Bob Hoskins? Ooh, that's tough. Uh, I'd say worse. He is worse. He is worse. Billy Holiday, better or worse than Billy Bob Thornton? Better. <laughs> yes, I think you'd have to say better. Better. Billy Piper, better or worse than Billy Holiday? In what sense? Um, <laughs> I think worse, sorry. Worse, yeah. Billy Crystal, better or worse than Billy Piper? Billy Crystal, oh no, worse. Oh no, hang on, what is it? Billy Piper, better. Better. Uh, Billy Zane, better or worse than Billy Crystal? Worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely worse, yeah. Worse, yeah. Bill Nye, better or worse than Billy Zane? Better. <laughs> better. Olivia Coleman, better or worse than Bill Nye? Ooh. I think so. Better. better, yeah. Olivia Newton John, better or worse than Olivia Coleman? <laughs> worse. Worse. John Travolta, better or worse than Olivia Newton-John? Oh, better. Better. John Malkovich, better or worse than John Travolta? Better. Oh, that's tough. Um, yeah, I know, I'm going to have to say worse. Better. Better. Uh, no, that's a good score, though. <laughs> What's that, nine? I reckon that might be a nine. nine. Oh, you got nine! I think I got ten. Uh, I, think but got, I, I think you got ten I, on that one, eh? I think I got ten, uh, but um, I play it every week, Luke. So I kind of, I, I, I'm sort of cheating. Uh, but you are the third guest in our third season, so you have scored nine. You are the current uh, top of the table. You are beating Susie Dent with eight and Henry Normal with seven. So congratulations! You must well, feel. I'm, I feel flattered. I'm, I'm amazed. It's wonderful. Don't be flattered. You did it all by yourself, mate. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. You can add um, that to all your accolades now. You can make, you put that on your CV. Yeah. Um, so, uh, good luck when you get back to touring, and good luck writing your songs, uh, Luke. And uh, I'm no. obviously, I'm as far obviously, as I know, we are touring in November, but we don't know if that's going to change. That's the trouble. Hmm. Sure. Um, I'm obviously a massive fan of yours. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and joining the clubhouse. You're very, very um, welcome. I've been Nick Helm. This has been Nathaniel Metcalf. We've been talking to Luke Morley. That's fat. I'm just trying to work out a new way of ending the episode. That's fan club. Yeah, that worked. Let's play. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>